The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. I love trains. <laughs> we don't hear them where I live. So I brought some words with me that I want to share with you tonight. I'm so happy to be here. I was here once before, and when he mentioned, when Jim mentioned the Tassar Bakery, you all know Gil, of course. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, Gil and I uh, were at the Tassar Bakery together probably close to 40 years ago. And he was a tall, skinny kid, and uh, so was I. And I have loved him for 40 years, so I'm sure you all love him too. So I'm very grateful to be at his practice center, and I just had supper with him, which was lovely. And I think you all know he has dual citizenship with the Zen Center and with... uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think we had him first, but it's okay. It's, It's We're happy to share... His lovely, his lovely teaching. So I wanted to start with the Zen story. Um, this is from a collection called the Blue Cliff Record. A monk named Hui Zhao asked Fayen, what is Buddha? And Fayen said, you are Hui Zhao. So like most Zen stories, they often leave you uh, sort of wondering, you know, could I have a little more, a little more of a hint about what's going on here? I don't really know what's going on, but I'm going to make some stuff up, and, uh, <laughs> which is what we get to do. Uh, it's like abstract painting, you know. We get to interpret these few words in some way that uh, feels good, you know, to me, and inspires my uh, practice in some way. So... Um, I began reflecting on this question, what is Buddha, by thinking back on some current events in my own life. And this last summer, I spent three days down at Tassajara, our uh, Zen Mountain Monastery, and I did a workshop together with the travel writer Pico Iyer. And Pico became quite popular among the meditators because he wrote a book called, or he did a TED Talk called Stillness which maybe some of you saw. And he got lots of hits, you know, because for a travel writer to talk about stillness seemed a little strange to people. But he really talked about staying home, finding your place at home. And um, so the Zen Center put on a uh, fundraiser at Grace Cathedral, and I was asked if I would be sort of the kind of escort for Pico. So we arrived. I hadn't met him before. We arrived at Grace Cathedral, and about a half hour before we were supposed to go in, I met Pico for the first time. He, he's a wonderful, charming gentleman, so it was very easy to feel comfortable with him. So we walked into this great cathedral. Have you, have you all been in Grace Cathedral by any chance? Some of you haven't, but anyway, it's, it's enormous. And we went through the big front doors, and right in front of the altar was this large platform with two thrones on it. And then we were directed to sit up there. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I thought, I'm so sorry my parents aren't still alive because this would really be impressive, you know. Hi, Mom, hi, Dad. <laughs> anyway, um, but really what I was sort of dumbfounded by this extraordinary um, effort we make, we humans make to distinguish one from one another, you know, distinguish ourselves from each other. And we use all kinds of costumes and lighting and stage settings and titles. For example, I'm an abbess. That's my title. And we kind of create this impression of, of uh, either greatness on one hand or humility on the other hand. And as a Zen priest, I'm never sure which side of the coin I'm on, you know. Um, so I, I hope to be careful and not get stuck on one or the other. So uh, there's a wonderful story to this point uh, from the Zen tradition about another Zen abbot who is up at the altar and he's bowing again and again and he's saying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And then this young monk who's sweeping in the corner starts bowing. He's saying, you know, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And the abbot's attendant points over there and he said, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> Um, so I think what's really probably happening, um, like Shakespeare famously illuminated, is that we humans are all actors on the great stage of reality. You know? And that in reality there is no higher or lower among the humans, no you know, better or worse. And then we create these plays that make it seem as though it's so. So, um, although we all arrived on the earth without a script, without any assignments, you know, we are given lines and language and social standing, and over time we're conditioned to identify with some um, status or some position, and I think we're all seeing the effects of that, this uh, unconscious conditioning that we've all had as, you know, uh, for very clearly nowadays we're looking at uh, the disease of whiteness we're looking at racial conditioning gender conditioning social conditioning class conditioning and so on and the tremendous pain this this conditioning causes between us you know from one human to the other so you know and then as we get older these conditionings are further exacerbated by our education by the entertainment industry you know by the legal system and of course by the police so there's a structural we have a structural problem that's been going on for a very long time and certainly in our our culture and a deep deep wounding and i think those of us who are living now have some responsibility to see if we can break the code and uh, come back, regain our humanity. So this summer at Green Gulch and throughout the rest of Zen Center, we've been studying conditioning and the result of this injustice as it particularly concerns racial discrimination and this terrible dehumanizing that's been going on. I think we're all well aware uh, of what's happening, what's not happening, and hopefully what needs to happen. And even though, you know, children are all very vulnerable to being conditioned, 
and in, unfortunately, it's, it, it deprives them of the possibility of living to fulfill their own dreams, you know. I, I don't know how many of you can remember what you dreamt of being when you were children. Maybe if you think about it for a minute, you know, what, what did you hope you would be when you were a child? You know, and how did that turn out? And what was it, you know, that changed the course of your dreams? And I think when I was young, I, it had to do with realizing the limitations of my gender and my education. Um, the wealth, my family's wealth, which was not much. So there were many things that I saw were available to other people and that were not available to me. And so I changed my dreams. And I think it wasn't until I came in contact with the Buddhist tradition that I became re-inspired to dream. You know, to dream of some, um, you know, some kind of mountaintop. What, what would my, might that be to be on the top of the mountain of my own aspirations? So Buddha is kind of a shorthand for whatever many of us imagine to be sort of the wisest and kindest and happiest form of human life. And for a Buddhist, that's kind of the top of the mountain, you know, to be a whatever, you know, to be a Buddha. You know. What is Buddha? And Buddha comes in lots of different forms depending on our conditioning. For people who have been raised in a spiritual environment, you know, Buddha has names like Jesus or Muhammad or Gandhi and so on, Martin Luther King Jr. or God himself. And for the materialists, it might be your aspiration is to be someone like a Rockefeller or a Mellon or a Bill Gates, something like that. And who we admire is a good indication of how we are planning to get to the top of the mountain. It's a good indication of our aspiration. So I've, um, sadly though, I feel like these days I've talked to a lot of young people who come to Green Gulch and they don't seem to have many aspirations at all. You know, there's no one that they truly admire, the role models in our society. It's, you know, I think it's really been challenging for us to, uh, you know, enter into the idealized heroic uh, imagery. Certainly I had a lot more belief in heroes when I was young. And nowadays, not so much, not so much. So, um, this question, you know, what is Buddha? What is Buddha? So when I was uh, sitting there up on the throne at Grace Cathedral, I had this feeling that, you know, this is very surreal, this position I'm in right now, um, because this is a, a room in which I had taken Holy Communion as a child, and now I'm, I'm sitting up here, and the surreal part, you know, I think continues, um, you know, right now I feel this kind of surreal uh, presence in sitting here talking to all of you because I really don't know how I got here. You know, I don't know all the causes and conditions that led me to be sitting up here right now. I do know that all those causes and conditions, however, have completely vanished. And what that leaves me with is sitting here kind of in awe of the present moment. Like, 
who are you? <laughs> what am I? Where are we? All the same questions I had as a child are present for me right now. So what is going on, you know? What are we doing? Uh, what are we called on to do? So for this reason, I feel as though asking questions is a really good thing for us to be doing. You know, asking important questions of ourselves and of each other. What are we here to do in this very short time we have uh, alive here on the earth? And I think the questions are really important, but the answers are, I think we should be careful when we get answers, you know, very cautious, like, is that so? Is that right? So I wanted to offer another story from the Zen tradition, which is about stories themselves. So Ditsan asked Fion, where are you going? And Fion said, around on pilgrimage. Ditsan said, what is the purpose of pilgrimage? In other words, tell me your story. Tell me your story. Fion said, I don't know. And Ditsan said, not knowing is nearest. Not knowing is nearest. Where are you going? Around on pilgrimage. What's the purpose of pilgrimage? I don't know. Not knowing is nearest. So it strikes me that there's two rather good answers right here. The first one being, I don't know, and the other one being, not knowing is nearest. And so then I begin to wonder, well, then what is there to talk about? You know, what is there to say? I actually liked that first 45 minutes very much. You know, I thought, well, <laughs> this is the Dharma talk, you know. And um, I felt so content in, in your company. I felt like intimacy with everyone in the room, you know, and, and, uh, and now I'm kind of stuck up here, you know. <laughs> so um, that's part of the wonder of it all, really. This idea that we're separate, which I actually know we're not, but somehow there's an appearance. So when I was wondering about, well, what can I talk about, the first thought that came to mind was, well, it's just a miracle. It's as close as I can get. This is a miracle, what we're experiencing right now. Yeah? That being alive, being conscious, being awake, being Buddha is a miracle. And it's all-inclusive, and none of us can ever escape. So it happens all the time. It's happening right now. It happens every minute of your life. You know, we are completely and totally included in reality. So this very mind is Buddha, and this very place is the top of the mountain. That's what Buddha said. And yet, I know, and he knew, that there's a catch. And the catch is that something very subtle and ominously near is blocking our view of ourselves and of each other as Buddha, as awake. 
And this is exactly the question that Hui Chao asked his teacher, you know. He said, what is Buddha? I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see myself as Buddha. I don't see you as Buddha. What is it? You know, what is awake? And the teacher responds, understanding his student's pain. You are Hui Chao. You are Hui Chao. The fire god has come seeking fire. So the title of the workshop that Pico and I gave down at Tassajara this last summer, we called it Facing the Flames, which had much to do with um, two very real fires that he and I both had been uh, very close to that, that year. Um, one of them for him was a big fire in Santa Barbara in which his home and four, 400 other homes burned to the ground. And he barely got out with his cat. And um, everything he had, all of his work, his writing, his photographs from his childhood were gone. And for me, and for the Zen Center, our community was faced by what was called the Sobrantes Fire last summer, which was one of the largest forest fires in California. And Tassajara was within a half a mile of being burned to the ground. And... Um, yeah, and the fire stopped. We don't know why, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe because we were ready. We had our hoses out. <laughs> we were like, all right, come on. Anyway, it didn't come, but uh, it'll be back. It always comes back. So Pico and I had both brought stories, various stories and some songs that used the metaphor of fire to evoke this danger as well as this possibility of radical transformation when one is faced by flames the flames of reality itself, the flames that we're all facing right now. So for Pico, what he talked about was how this fire had really cleansed his life of all kinds of, you know, memories and things that he felt like he really had to carry forward with him. They were gone. So he started over. It was a true cleansing for him. And, um, and we both talked about how being surrounded by, by flames is maybe one of the very best places to observe the ever-changing nature of reality. So the word fire itself is a very common metaphor in the Buddhist teaching, and it indicates not only this transient nature of reality, but also the transient nature of words themselves as we use them to try and make sense of reality. You know, what is Buddha? What are words? So if we can't, you know, make sense of reality, we then try to use words to stop reality from changing, you know, to stop aging and sickness and death. That's why the Buddha ran away from home. He was afraid. He heard about aging, sickness, and death, and he was very afraid. And so he left home, tried to run away. You know, as if we could run away from losing our loved ones or run away from our livelihoods being lost, or our reputations being lost, or our sanity, all the great fears. The fifth of the great fears is speaking in front of the assembly, by the way. <laughs> so if all else fails, you know, we even try to stop the wind and the rain, and we see how that's been going. Not so well. 
So what we call Zazen in the Zen tradition is modeled on the example of the Buddha himself who sat upright in the midst of the flames, watching quietly as all notions of the world and of himself continuously melted away, like snowflakes on a hot iron skillet. Observing reality in such a way without complaint is basically what is meant by Buddha. And it's what is meant by awake. Thank you very much. I have no complaint. I once asked my teacher during a very long session of meditation, so what do I do with the fear that I have about transiency, uh, particularly about my own? And he said, you have to get used to it. So, you know, with answers like that, you might think that Zen is sort of a quick fix. You know, it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> takes care of that. Um, and in many ways, it is a quick fix, um, but quick fixes don't last either. You know, just like the seasonal fires, fear comes back. So, in those times between when the fear has arrived or the fire has arrived, we might imagine we can abide in that safe zone, you know, between the moments that we really don't like so much, you know, the ones where we're scared or we're anxious and so on. And we call that, we prefer that moment. It's kind of sparkling and clear. And I think all of us have had those moments. Maybe you had one, you know, a half hour ago. I had a few very sparkling, clear moments that I liked a lot. Others, not so much. But, you know, there were a few of those moments sitting quietly when I thought, oh, yeah, I just want to stay right here. This will do, you know, forever. So in those moments, we might imagine that this very mind is Buddha. And it is, and that's the truth. It's the ultimate truth. And yet there's this other truth called the relative truth. And the relative truth, it continuously partners with the ultimate truth. You can't get one without the other, and that's what I want to talk about next. So the first part of the talk, I brought up this idea that this very mind is Buddha. This very moment is Buddha, and that we are at the top of the mountain right now. That we're already awake. And this is one of the things I suggest to the students at the Zen Center. is that, well, just think of yourself as already being Buddha. All right? Just go ahead. Assume you're already awake, and now go forward from there. And yet an answer to Hui Chao, who asked, what is Buddha? Fayen doesn't say, you are. He says, you are Hui Chao. And how do we make sense of that? You are Hui Chao. So my understanding of this story is that connecting the monk, the human being, with all of his karmic conditioning to his uh, true identity as Buddha is what his teacher is endeavoring to show him. You know? This is called um, in Zen the two arrows meeting in midair. Buddha and sentient beings. Each of you 
and awakening itself. So in these moments, when Buddhas and sentient beings are one, what is Buddha? You are Hui Chao. Or if you read it slightly differently, what is Buddha? You are Hui Chao. So therein lies the power of language, you know, to pivot and to turn. That meaning isn't a thing. Words aren't things. They're processes moving through and helping us or hindering us. Because each word comes with its partner. You know, joy and sorrow is and isn't, up and down, right and wrong. We partner words, and in doing that, we allow them to turn. They do turn. So the power of language is also the power of this pivot, of this turning. There's freedom in language, if we allow. So there, I have one another story for you that's recounted in this very same koan about another monk whose name is Se, and he's also a student of Zen master Fayan. Se has been staying at Fayan's monastery for quite some time, but never asks to enter the teacher's room for special instruction, what in Japanese is called dogsan. So Fayan asks Se that very question, why haven't you come to enter my room? Tse replies, well, didn't you know, teacher, when I was at Ching Lin's place, I had an entry into the true nature of reality. In other words, I realized that I am Buddha. Fayan says, well, try to recall it for me. And Tse says, well, I asked the teacher, what is Buddha? And the master said, the fire god comes seeking fire. Fayan says, well, those are good words, but... I'm afraid you've misunderstood. Can you say something more for me? Tse says, Well, the fire god is in the province of fire, and he's seeking fire with fire. Likewise, I am Buddha, yet I went on looking for Buddha. And Fayan says, Sure enough, you have misunderstood. So containing his anger, Tse left the monastery and went off across the river. Fayan said, this man can be saved if he comes back. If he doesn't return, he can't be saved. Out on the road, Se thought to himself, Fayan is a teacher of 500 people. How could he deceive me? So he turned around and went back again to call on Fayan, who said to him, well, just ask me and I'll answer for you. Thereupon Se asked, what is Buddha? Fayan said, the fire god comes seeking fire. At these words, Tse was greatly enlightened. <laughs> so what's going on? You know, what's going on here? So it sort of sounds like the student teacher just going around in circles, you know, kind of circling the fire together. So I don't know uh, how it is for all of you, but I often feel very tempted to try out some easy way to escape the snares and the traps implanted in these Zen teaching stories. So I propose that just what Se has done, he's attached himself to what is called the ultimate truth, that he is Buddha. 
and he's gotten stuck there. And in doing so, he's stuck on a concept of himself. And he's stuck on a word, the word Buddha. And what he's turned away from is the relative truth, the truth of his own limited human form. So as with all of us here, our limited human form is the only means by which Buddha can be known, can be heard, or can be seen. By understanding our dual nature, that on one hand we are Buddha, and on the other hand, you are Hui Chao, is to have arrived at the summit of the mystic peak, the place where human beings and Buddhas go to dance. And where is that? Don't know. Not knowing is nearest. And in other words, perhaps it's right here. It's always right here where Buddhas and sentient beings come to dance. So there's a poem by another of Fayan's disciples whose name is Te Chao on the occasion of a great realization he had while sitting in the assembly listening to Fayan speak. Fayan was a wonderful teacher. He had about a thousand disciples. So that's why so many people talk about him as their teacher. There's an ocean of followers that grew until it was never less than a thousand, according to his biography. The summit of the peak of mystic crossing is not the human world. Outside the mind, there are no things. Blue mountains fill the eyes. The summit of the peak of the mystic crossing is not the human world. Outside the mind, there are no things. Blue mountains fill the eyes. So, I don't think we really understand. Right? This is not the kinds of words that are said for us to understand, but more to bring up that inquiry, that deep inquiry, like, what? What, what is that? What is that? And it brings me back to this first thing that I said in response to asking my own questions of what is Buddha, like, well, it's a miracle. We're a miracle that being alive and being conscious and being awake, being Buddha, is a miracle. Blue mountains fill the eyes. And it's a miracle from which all of us are included and none of us can escape. The very miracle that's always happening right now. This very mind is Buddha. And what it is that holds us back from seeing that that holds us back from planting our staff on top of the mountain. I think all of us in this room are intimate with the problems of human existence, the answer to what is holding us back from knowing who we really are right now. What's holding us back is how we think, thinking itself. And it's the way that we think together and fashion a world together. And the Buddha said, in the Dhammapada, which I think many of you are probably familiar with, what we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday. Our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is a creation of our mind. What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday. And our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. 
Our life is a creation of our mind. So if we really come to consider that it's thinking that's holding us back, then what can we do about that? You know. Uh, what we say at the Zen Center is usually, well, how do we practice with that? How do we practice with the problem we have is our thinking? Yeah. So I think all of you probably have also encountered that much of Buddhism is made up of a lot of lists with numbers. So you ask a question, you get a list of numbers like the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Six Paramitas and the Twelvefold Chain the 16 bodhisattva precepts, the 37 wings of enlightenment, the one great vehicle, the two truths, and so on. So, um, so basically, I, before I start you know, looking into each one of those, I really appreciated a very simple answer that was as commonly spoken in the Zen tradition by one of our founders, his name is Master Dogen. And what he said is, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And that's it. Study the self. The one you believe you are. Which means to turn the light of your awareness around onto your body, your feelings, your thoughts, your actions. And to begin to notice how your ideas about yourself and about others are the source of both your misery and your happiness. And the source also of the misery and happiness of those around you. So as a simple way of exploring the truth of how your thinking is making the world, I want to leave you with a mindfulness exercise that was taught to me at Green Gulch by one of our priests. His name is Timo Blanc. So first of all, um, if each of you would just decide on a small gesture you can make, maybe with your hands or... Hands probably good since you're seated. So I picked this one for myself to go like that. That's my gesture. All right. So the practice is, first of all, make that gesture with your full awareness. Now make that gesture again, only this time, make the gesture as an expression of hate. And the third time, make the gesture as a gift. And for the last time, make the gesture as an expression of your deepest concern. I don't think it's too hard to notice how our thinking affects our actions. You know, it's a very easy connector there like I think hate I do hate I think generosity I'm generous so this is a secret to life you know that our thinking generates our actions and so it's important for us to really pay close attention to our thoughts our hateful thoughts our lustful thoughts our greedy thoughts and so on our confused thoughts, and to realize how much our life will express those thoughts, not only to our own detriment, but to that of those around us. 
So I think it's important for us to, you know, really learn these ways, these practices for entering into, deeply into, intimate relationship with our thinking and thereby transform our behavior in the world. And if, if we can do that, you know, if, if the, those of us who are deeply caring about this world and, and trying to transform ourselves and our thinking, perhaps together we can begin to make changes in the larger world, you know, to begin to change some of the terrible suffering that we see and we hear is happening all around us. May all beings be happy. May they live in joy and safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong and high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, may all beings be happy. So I wonder if you have anything you'd like to bring up with me this evening or comments or questions. Yes. So when you said you were concerned about the young kids that came to Green Gulch, and I'm not sh sure if I heard um, anything else from that because maybe they're going through the Buddhist be being a Buddha. Well, that's the, that's, the, that's the program, that's the training program. <laughs> We're training people to think that that's, uh, that's the ideal that we hope that they will wish to be. That if there aren't heroes in our culture, you know, used to be kids wanted to be firemen or, you know, something, uh, the president, I think that's gone away now. I think... <laughs> You know, the aspiration to be a good person, it's, it's challenging for us to point out uh, people that we really admire. I mean, I, there are people in my life I really admire. And, um, and I think the idea of someone so kind and compassionate as the Buddha is a pretty good model for young people. And uh, so I'm happy that we can offer that model to the people who come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So when you're caught up in a very strong thought process, but you know it's not really the most skillful one to be in, yes. what's a good way of kind of working with that? Don't move. Yeah. Did you notice when you were sitting how lots of thoughts came and went? Yeah, they'll go. So if you just hold still, if you can, if you're in a situation, it's hard to something where you're driving or something, you know, you get angry. But sometimes if you're in a situation where you can just stop and take about eight or nine breaths, those thoughts will pass. And uh, so patience is one of the main practices. I, and actually, I think of sitting as a practice of patience. You know, you just, you kind of wait through it. And then it passes. And then you, you get some encouragement from that. So, yeah. Yes. I want to thank you. I thought I didn't like Zen. You don't like Zen? 
I thought, oh, you thought you didn't like I didn't Zen. like Zen. Ah. And I realized that I like it very much. <laughs> <laughs> See? <You know? laughs> One of the teachings I was given a long time ago was release the need to understand. Hmm. And mm. I think that's what I needed to do. Ah. So thank you. Thank you. I hate to be so sad after something so lovely was said. I've been I've been a police officer for about ten years, mm. and recently I got out of that career, and it's uh, makes me very sad to always hear, in a spiritual like setting, how the police are bad, or how mm. they're oppressive, um, and just the same way I think using racial slurs towards mm. somebody, um, I. I don't know what that feels like, but in the law enforcement community, mm. I could imagine that's very painful hearing things like that too. Mm. What do you think it is about almost, almost want to say spirituality or like spiritual based communities that creates this type of animosity towards law enforcement? And I've realized I'm constantly having to try to change people's minds mm -hmm. about this profession, about what we see, about what we deal with. And, and it's, it's just a struggle. It's just mm -hmm. painful to kind of have to, you know, I, I think Gil's even brought it up a few times. And I'm just trying to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. Really, I appreciate that. And I'm sorry if I uh, sounded like I was being disrespectful to your profession because I don't feel that way. I've been very grateful on many occasions for having a policeman show up at various times and I've felt protected. Um, and I know not everyone does feel protected. Sometimes it's, you know, it goes both ways. And I think, um, I think we all have to learn how to do this better together. Like how to have the, the protection and then not have that turn into something that becomes a constraint or a control or a violence, you know. So that it's the violence, I think, that uh, we would like not to, anyone to be violent to anyone else. And I understand your role is to try to stop the violence and protect people from being violent. Um, but you know it's complicated. Uh, yeah. You probably know better than anybody how complicated it is. Yeah, I almost feel we're taking, you know, hundreds of years of oppression and injustice and, uh, you know, economic, social, all kinds of injustice. And then we're, the police officers are the scapegoat now uh, uh, instead of the whole system, right? Yeah. Because it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, just, uh, it's just hurtful. And even like I love NPR and, and every now and then they go through their like phase of just bashing the profession and it's just it's just being somebody who's who's had a spiritual practice and started meditating when I was 19 it just doesn't make it easy yeah, yeah. hearing those things yeah. and I just wanted you to know that it's yeah. hurtful and I'm not trying yeah. to change anything but no. shed light on that and right. thank you for listening oh no, I'm so sorry but you know the NFL's joining you guys now so I mean everybody's you know it's just amazing what's happening now. All of us are being so separated from each other. And it's like this kind of, 
you know, and how can we, I mean, I think we do want to end that. I, I, we do want to go back to appreciating and loving the role that everyone plays. I felt that way as a child. I had great faith in my neighbors and in the police and everything, the dog catcher, and, you know, everybody was part of the community. So um, I think we can go back there. You know, and I'm glad you. you're here. Thank you so really, much. Really, very important. Thank you for being here to, to say those things. You know, really, thank you. Thank you for shifting my heart a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to be, to be sad as well, but I just wanted to t say that I was savagely, savagely beaten by police officers. <clears throat> so, I just want to, there are people in the Sangha who have had that terrible experience with individuals in your profession, unfortunately. And my case was thrown out because it was absolutely horrible. And I'm a mother of three children, and they beat me so badly. So, no, it, it happens. And so, I think there is, unfortunately, causes and conditions that will have people happen had that experience and have that feeling. And I spend much of my meditation dealing with the trauma around that experience and my mm. practice. Mm. And, yeah, so thank you. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we've been trying to understand and how to talk to each other is uh, how to listen to the impact and to not um, run for some excuse or some... Uh, Rationale. It's more like, oh, I'm so sorry that that impact has happened. I'm sorry for the impact on you. I'm sorry for the impact on... And if we can all listen to the impact, uh, I think it's going to be a really important thing. Right now, what's happening for all of us, we have to listen to the impact on each and every person in our society. And uh, it's terrible. It is terrible. Both sides. All sides. Um... I, I've been alive almost 70 years and I've never felt quite so frightened or um, confused as I am right now. And I think maybe I share that with all of you as well. Uh, Gil and I were saying at dinner, we've been training for 40 years for this time. It's come now. And I, can, and I, you know, I looked at each other and I said, Gil, what do we do? And he said, I don't know. But our meditation practice we do know that that makes us saner and more, more able to listen to the pain of our neighbors and our friends. So thank you, all of you, for your practice. And um, we're connected. You know, we're all doing this at the same time. We're, there's lots of us doing this work of trying to be sane. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm grateful to know you're here, and I'm... I want you to know we're there, and there's, <laughs> there's lots of people trying to hold this together right now. So um, I think our time is up, but thank you very much for being here and for your kindness and your kind attention. <laughs>